0: Hi, this is IbadianX, and welcome to another episode of The Candid Frame. This episode of The Candid Frame is brought to you by Squarespace, the beautiful and intuitive website publishing platform that allows anyone to easily create professional web pages, blogs, online stores, and galleries all on a single platform. For a free trial and 10% off your first purchase on new accounts, go to squarespace.com forward slash Candid Frame and use the offer code Candid 5. When I think about the images that really spur my interest, they often revolve around images that are taken very close to home. You know, you can always think that the best photographs are made when people go to exotic locations or or distant lands. But when I look at a lot of the personal projects that are being made by hundreds of photographers all over the world, most of those images are really almost taken literally in people's backyards. There's something about having familiarity, access to one's own community that allows photographers to, to produce some really exceptional work. And today's guest, Will Jacks, has been doing that with his project, portraits of a juke joint that he's been doing in the Mississippi Delta. The work started off as an editorial assignment, but he's kind of taken that as sort of the launching pad to really explore the people and the community and the dynamic that exists around this particular juke joint known as Poe Monkey's uh, Lounge down down there in Mississippi. And when you take a look at these images and when you hear the story that we're going to share here on this episode, You really have an understanding of why some photographers really end up making some images that are so different from a lot of the work that's out there. As you'll hear, this is a destination that many photographers go and make images because of the reputation that this particular juke joint has. But Will has been doing something a little different in the fact that he really challenged himself to produce images that not only were different from what the other photographers were producing but something that really challenged him as a photographer to do something beyond what he might be able to do initially in terms of producing good work and really challenging himself and saying, okay, I want to go to the next level. I really want to push myself and get past that feeling of discomfort that I have to see really what I'm capable of doing. And I think that you'll agree that the images are a testament to his ability. And his success in being able to do just that. So, sit back and enjoy our conversation
1: with Will Jax.
0: Well, thanks for reaching out to me.
1: I, you're welcome and thank you for your response. I, you know, I was a little reluctant to do that as well. And I certainly didn't want it to be misinterpreted at all. So, I appreciate you reaching you know.
0: Well, as soon as I saw the work, I said, okay, I'm glad that he reached out to me. <laughs> well, thank you
1: very much. Because
0: the images are, are just amazing and beautiful. Thank you. And like you said, I've seen work that, is, that have been done by uh, others who have gone down there. Mm-hmm. I know there was a book about 20 years ago uh, called Jute Joints.
1: Yes, Bernie is a great influence of mine, actually.
0: And uh, also, I know Bill Allard had done stuff, I think, back in the early 80s or 70s mm-hmm. down there. But when I saw your work, I had not seen that particular take on it. Well, thank you. I just, I just thought the work was just just stunning. And so I was really pleased to, to have the chance to, to be able to talk to you about it.
1: Well, thank you very much. That's a wonderful compliment. I appreciate that.
0: How long have you been uh, working on that?
1: I guess um, four years going into the fifth year now. It's, uh, it all kind of runs together at this point. So I, at least four years.
0: So how'd you, yeah. how'd you get started on that? I mean, what what sort of spurred you to do it? Because I, I see that you're, you know, you're also doing weddings. You're doing a sort of a documentary approach mm-hmm. to, to weddings.
1: Uh, well, I live in a small town and really kind of taught myself, I guess, photography. And so I do a little bit, or have done a little bit of a lot. Over the years, I've kind of gravitated very much into more of a documentary style. The weddings, I'll do about 15 weddings a year and... And they fund, you know, and so I'm able to self-fund personal projects. And that's about it now. I do a little bit of editorial work every now and then. And so this particular project was born out of an editorial project for a a small uh, regional lifestyle magazine called Delta Magazine. And so I just approached them several years ago about doing a photo essay. And we kind of brainstormed what that might mean and decided on Monkeys. And um, and once that was published, it took about nine months to work on that. And then once it was published, there was something that just didn't sit well with me. And I think it's it's because I I live in this community. You know, I only live a few miles from where that juke joint is, and people from all over the world tend to visit there. And so I would see the regulars every day in the, you know, around town or at the grocery or just somewhere like that, and it just didn't, I didn't feel comfortable going out there so regularly for nine months and then once the piece was published saying, okay, so you got us later. I appreciate it. I'm done now. So I just continued to go back and there was still something about the original images that I produced, even though some of those are still some of my favorites that I've created. There was still a little bit of a typicalness, I guess, you know, I didn't feel like I'd done anything that hadn't been done before. Okay. And so uh, I wanted to see if maybe I could do that. I didn't know what it meant at the time but i knew that there was still something more that i hadn't even touched on i was just scratching the surface which i'd seen so many other photographers do in this area as well
0: well tell me about those first nine months because it's unusual for an editorial assignment to spend that kind of time um... it
1: is and and that's the you know part of that's the benefit of working with the smaller publication it's i've got a very good relationship with that with the editors and the publisher of that publication Uh, And there was not really any timeliness to this particular job. So it would have made as much sense in November as it did in January. So they just gave me all the time that I needed. Basically, we kind of set a goal far out in advance to do that. Uh, It doesn't happen much. I mean that's really rare. Yeah, but it's it was born out of the, just a really good relationship with that publication.
0: Did you already have relationships with people? Did you already have access, or did uh, first the first few you know weeks or months of of that was it sort of getting people accustomed to you? Particularly, like you mentioned, there were so many other photographers who've traveled there to to photograph them.
1: Yeah, it, it, no, I didn't have any relationships. Not any any deeper really than. Probably anybody else that had gone out there, except for maybe a few small instances. You know, since I'm from here, there might be, on any given night, there might be other patrons of, of the Juke Joint that, that I know fairly well. But as far as the, the really regulars, you know, Mr. Seabury, who owns the club, as, no, to them, I was just somebody else that was showing up. And Mr. Seabury is a very welcoming man is very open and allows anybody to come in there and make photographs without really any trouble at all he 's very gracious with his time and that kind of and he sets the tone so that kind of spreads to all of the regulars that are there too it 's really rare that I feel any uncomfortableness from the people there with with photography and I notice it when other people come in to make photographs as well everybody is you know they enjoy it now. When I go out there, everybody asks me to make photographs of them. They call me picture man now. <laughs> but in in the beginning, it wasn't that way. And and probably after my second trip, because it's only open once a week, so it becomes kind of a weekly ritual for me. By this, on my second trip, I started to feel a little uncomfortable. Not really because of anything that any anything that anyone had said to me or uh, any body language that was directed towards me but it just didn't feel i felt really uncomfortable and so i took about two or three more trips after that without my camera and just made notes and decided i needed to just kind of be a part of it i had been to poor monkeys before but never with the intent to observe and document what was it was- that,
0: what do you think that discomfort was was about
1: um i was i was taking i was i wasn't giving back i wasn't a part of anything i i didn't i didn't ask if it was okay I just did it and I realized fairly quickly that that didn't sit well with me it probably didn't bother anyone there in hindsight, but it really bothered me mm. and it was a very good lesson for me with as I began to grow into a more documentary style with my work and I guess find my voice a bit more as a photographer, even though I'd been technically earning my living as a photographer for a good 10, 12 years prior to that. um, This whole process was a really, really rich learning experience for me and kind of understanding what it is I want to say and how it is I prefer to work, uh, what's important to me in photography and as a photographer, and not just in the images, but in the interactions with the people that I work with. And I began to kind of come back and and ask more permission, really. You know, there, there was no unbiased, totally objective point of view for me. And once I realized that, I realized it was really important that I get to know the people that I was photographing and that they know me. And so I spent more time doing that.
0: Well, you mentioned that even after nine months, you were kind of dissatisfied with the images that you had, had produced. So when you took a look at that work after the, the article had been published, and even though you were you know, trying to sort of immerse yourself in there mm-hmm. and getting to know the people, why do you think that even after nine months of shooting continually with that sort of insightful perspective in terms of what you wanted to sort of give as well as, as take, why do you think you still felt that you could have done more and and then pursued that afterwards.
1: Uh that's a good question and I think if I'm if I'm to be really honest with myself it was because I was scared to show the images to the people that were in them. I was worried about what their reaction might be because I knew that they hadn't really seen much of the work that I'd created. And that uneasiness just told me that that I was still very much an outside observer that I hadn't earned the trust that I needed to in order to really document people in a way that was truthful yet also honored them. Mm -hmm. And I still went out there and even though people were more comfortable with me, they didn't really know me and I didn't know much about them other than uh, what I saw on Thursday night at that club. And That's what everybody that's ever photographed out there, uh, and I'm making a very sweeping comment here, I understand that. So I could be very wrong, but in general, that seems to be what happens a lot. People go on Thursday night, they get that content, so they know what they see on that night. And there's so much more to that place, to everything, to all of this world, than just that one kind of surface thing that first piques our interest. And I knew I hadn't gotten to that yet. Other people responded very well to the images and they were like, Oh, these are great. We love it. But I knew that there was something more there and that's what, that's what I didn't like.
0: What did you end up discovering that you don't think you would have otherwise? Can you share some images that you took there that you feel like because you put in that extra time, because you built in Mm, those relationships that you got shots that you never would have gotten otherwise?
1: Yes, absolutely. there is a shot on my blog, uh, on the Portrait of a Jew Joint blog, of a young lady out front. She's wearing kind of a tight dress, and it's really lit hard from either side. I don't have it in front of me right now, but that particular image was made at the end of a night and it was made because a man named Larry Grimes, who is kind of Mr. Seabury's right-hand man almost. He's out there every week. There's several portraits of Larry on the blog as well. Larry has been a huge advocate of mine over the years as I've gotten to know him. So he, that particular night, there was some n- newer people there. They were from the area, but they, they don't come to Pull Monkeys that much. And so he grabbed this particular young woman and said, Hey, you need to come on out. You, know, you need to let Will make your portrait. Uh, he's working on this book. You should uh, you should get in it. And so she was very interested in that. A lot of times I work inside. I almost always work with the light that is available to me. But for some reason I said But I always keep some some lights in my car. You know some strobes. But I also keep some LEDs and flashlights and just anything that'll generate light. And so for some reason I said you know what let's go outside. And so I really took a lot more time with that particular portrait, we probably spent a half hour Mm -hmm. out front and I set up some, you know, an LED light and that didn't quite light things the way I wanted. So I had somebody pull a car around and turn their headlights on and give me a little cross lighting there. And, and that wouldn't have happened without the comfort and the trust and me feeling comfortable as well saying, you know what, let's go out here and do it instead of trying to rush, things because I was worried that they might be uncomfortable with me making a photograph or doing or trying to make a photograph without them noticing that I was making a photograph. Uh, it was very blatant. Let's go make a portrait. And that doesn't happen if someone isn't comfortable with the entire process. And if I'm not comfortable with the entire process.
0: You know, I realize that uh, we probably should explain what a juke joint is. I mean, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, there, yeah. there are a lot of people who listen to this show outside of the U.S., who may be completely unfamiliar with, with what that is. So why don't you describe um, what a juke joint is or what makes it a particularly yeah. unique musical experience in this country?
1: You know, actually, a uh, quick side note, probably the irony of that statement is that there may be more listeners outside the U.S. that actually know what a juke joint is than people inside the U.S., <laughs> uh, especially Europeans. A juke joint was born really out of the plantation days Um, and I'm not sure I would even classify pool monkeys as a juke joint anymore Um, and I'll get to that in a second, although a lot of people would. But uh, a juke joint was a place that the farm workers would gather, usually on the weekends, on Saturday nights, just to let their hair down. But there was a uniqueness to it, I think, versus other bars. Uh, or clubs in that it was really community driven. Usually someone from the farm would play the music and uh, rarely were there people from outside their the immediate community that would show up. And it was born of this need to just release all the hard work and stress that had built up over that hard farm laboring that uh, had gone on all week long, but the key element again is that sense of community and sometimes it was at a commercial structure but more often than not it was born out of any place that just happened to be accommodating and in the case of Poor Monkey's Lounge it's Mr. Seabury's home. He's lived there pretty much all his adult life and this particular place started because friends started to gather at his house And over the years, he's converted it into a commercial business. And I use quote fingers for commercial um, because Pull Monkeys is a place that only exists now because it has existed for years. You would never, ever start a place like this as a business because it would never pass any commercial codes. It would never get the licenses that it needs. But Mr. Seabury is such a warm man and is just so magical with people that he's grandfathered in. Most of the juke joints that are left, and there's not many, are like that. They, every town used to have one, but over the years, they've just gone away. As the agricultural economy has, uh, or agriculture business has moved more and more mechanical, and uh, you certainly have less and less laborers you don't see these clubs anymore. And I think maybe that's why people are so attracted to them. And when Mr. Seabury dies, Poor Monkeys will be gone as well. Uh, It won't be the same. Mm. Red's Lounge in Clarksdale, same way when Red passes away, that's it. You know, it's as much about that person that started the club as it is the club, or even more so. It's not about the space at all. I think a lot of people are seduced by the space, and you mentioned the book Juke Joint uh, that was done by Bernie Imes in the late 80s and early 90s. And there's beautiful, beautiful images that he's made of these spaces. But that's very much an architectural book. And Bernie has actually taking, taken a little bit of criticism in some instances because he shot with large format. He was shooting four by five, I believe, with, with that project and a lot of available light. So he had a lot of long exposures. And so he has a lot of blurred people. And some, when people are in his images, often they're blurred. Not always, but often. And he's taken some criticism for that in that he made the people less important. And Bernie's been a great influence to me. I think that that criticism is extremely unfounded. And anybody that spends any time with Bernie, I think would... It doesn't take long to realize how compassionate he is towards other people. But that project really does highlight the spaces. And and it was kind of one of the first projects that I think uh, reached some, that developed some attention and shined a light on these these spaces that are here. Mm -hmm. And because of that, in a way that kind of begins to set the definition of, oh, what's a juke joint? Oh, it's this awesome place that, you know, really colorful, old, rundown buildings, and that's not really it at all. The you joint is always the person that owns it. Usually a man, but not always, sometimes it's a woman. And it's always born of this incredible, welcoming feeling when you enter one. It's just an amazing graciousness that seems to happen in these places that it's hard to describe, you just kind of have to experience it.
0: What did you learn about the, the people to, who go there, particularly the regulars? The fact that you were returning there over and over probably gave you some insight into who these people are outside of their participation on this, at this event once a week. What, what surprised you about what you learned about some of the people that, that you were seeing there each week?
1: That it wasn't a big deal to them. It was just a part of life. That's what they do. There's always this wonderful mixture at Pool Monkeys of locals and tourists, probably more than just about any other juke joint in the world, even Reds in Clarksdale. Uh, Although Reds will get really busy during, they have several music blues festivals in Clarksdale, so there's always a a huge uh, amount of tourists then. But on any given night at Pool Monkeys, you'll have, most of the the crowd being people that live within probably 10 miles of Pole Monkeys. And then you'll have a smattering of people from other parts of the country, L.A., New York, Chicago. And then you'll have a couple of Europeans that are there as well. So to all of the tourists, and I was very much this way, and I still am in a lot of ways when I first started going, it was a big deal. I'm going to Pole Monkeys. This is amazing. I'm doing this Wonderful, you know, to me, it was this wonderful, unique experience of actually getting to uh, live life, I guess. And to the regulars, though, it's just bull monkeys. It's just what we do on Thursday night. You know, there wasn't this grand gesture of, oh, it's, you know, I'm, now I'm going to really see what life is about. It's, I'm just going to live and, you know, this is what I do. We hang out. We treat people warmly. We smile. We dance with each other. We laugh. Doesn't everybody do that?
0: When you've been spending a, a time there, and you saw seeing these tourists and people come in. At, at any point, did you start feeling sort of protective,
1: or? <laughs> yes. Yes. Very much.
0: Okay, tell me yeah. about that because I, I, you know, because I, I suspect that you know when you see people coming in, and you know, you can't help but feel that way if, if not have a tinge of resentment towards people. So tell me about that and how, how you kind of dealt with that.
1: Uh, well, probably when I first realized what I, I needed to do, how I could do something different. Uh, I actually walked in one night, I'd made some portraits of Mr. Seabury, uh, whose nickname is Pull Monkey, which is where the name of the club, Pole Monkey's Lounge, comes from. Uh, He's been called Pole Monkey since he was two or three years old, long as he can remember. So I'd made some portraits of him that were fairly intimate and to me were not like anything that I'd ever seen done of him before. Most of the portraits that I've seen of Mr. Seabury are him in the middle of the room wearing really brightly colored suits. And he's playing the part of the ringmaster in a lot of ways. So I'd made some portraits of him back in his bedroom that were really kind of different and intimate, I felt like. And I wanted to take him some prints, but I was nervous about showing that portrait to him. So instead, I framed a very typical exterior shot of bull monkeys that uh, that I'd made that is not unlike thousands of others that have been made before. But I was just worried that um, he might not like what I'd done. So I chickened out and I took him this a framed print of this very typical shot. And as soon as I walked in the door at Pull Monkeys, right across from me was a Magnum photographer that I recognized instantly. It just went through my head. I was like, holy cow, that's this Magnum photographer. What in the world is he doing here? And then it struck me, you know, and damn, I brought this really boring photograph. To show, you know, and uh, so I went over and spoke with him and introduced myself and we probably talked for about three minutes and, you know, I, I just said, what brings you to the area? You know, what are you, you up to? And he had been teaching a workshop in Clarksdale. And then he made the comment. He said, I love this place. I love Poe Monkeys. He said, I come here all the time. And he probably, in hindsight, probably assumed that I was another white tourist like everybody else. He said, I love this place. I come here all the time. I, I, I love Pull Monkeys. He said, I've probably been here four or five times in the last two years. And he said it in a way that was meant to impress me, or at least that's the way I took it.
0: Mm-hmm. And,
1: and as soon as he said that, I thought four or five times in the last two years. I've been out here four or five times this week. Even though it's only open on Thursday nights, I'll go out there sometimes during the rest of the week and just hang out during the day and see if there's anything outside of the normal Thursday night juke. And I said that's it that's what I have is I have access. that's the most important thing to being a photographer is access, and I have it, and I have an opportunity to to build that and to get to know the people that are here and if I will find a way to give back to them as much as they give to me, then we'll be on to something and so that's what I, and if I'm not willing to do that then I don't need to pursue this project any further Mm. if it's all about me. So we need to shift this and I need to find a way to get back to them and see what happens. So now when I go out there, there's actually very few images that I make that will make it into the book. Usually they're there with friends or family and they'll say, hey, picture man, can you come take a picture of us? So I make their pictures and then I bring prints back the next week and sometimes they'll have parties or cookouts and they'll have family members that come to their homes, you know, for that on a Saturday afternoon or something. And if I'm not working with a wedding, I'll often go and make photographs for them. They'll call me and say, can you do this or do that? And these are people that can't really afford to pay for professional photography. And so I just spend a lot of time photographing their families um, as much as I can. And so when I see someone come in and make these photographs, Often, one of my my knee-jerk reaction to myself is, "What are they going to give back? Are they bringing prints back to these folks? You know, what are they? Are they even talking to them? Do they even know the names of the people that they're photographing? You know, and that it can it, and it can be a very harsh judgment on my part, and I recognize that. But if I'm honest, there is very much a defensive tone of that, and that's happened so much here in the Delta. You know, these these old bluesmen." that made a lot of people a lot of money, John Lee Hooker, died practically penniless. And I have a hard time with that. Uh, I still struggle with what exactly I'm going to do with the proceeds that come from this project when it's complete. I don't really sell anything right now. I take Mr. Seabury's some posters pretty regularly and let him sell them. Once the book comes out, I, I really have a hard time right now thinking about the concept of me making a lot of money off of prints and book sales and all of that. You know, and I know everybody that comes into Pull Monkeys to Photograph is not working on a book project. But you can tell the people that are really coming in to document. A couple weeks ago, there was a, a Hollywood actress that was out there, very famous Hollywood actress. And she came in documenting the place. It was very obvious that she was doing that. And she just never spoke to anyone. And that, that made me uncomfortable. She just photographed. I hope that in some way she'll find out who the people are and the images that she made. Or maybe she was doing that and I just was unaware of it. Mm. There's something about that that disappoints me. When it, it's not really that hard to just look someone in the eye and shake their hand and say, hi, I'm so-and-so, can I make your photograph?
0: And now I'd like to take the time to thank our sponsor, Squarespace. One of the interesting things that I'm discovering as a result of having my my website and looking at the, the statistics is how many people are accessing the website on mobile devices like tablets and smartphones. It's not just computers anymore. People are accessing the Internet and my website and probably your website on these mobile devices. So it has become increasingly important that your website looks good on all these different platforms. And Squarespace has made it so your website looks good regardless of what device someone is accessing the Internet with because Squarespace has developed these new templates that are mobile ready and they have these responsive designs which means your site automatically restructures to look great on any brand of smartphone tablet or computer so when you add an image to your site seven different versions are created so the correct size loads for the device so your site looks professionally designed no matter how it's viewed but you can find out for yourself by just signing up for a free account. There's no credit card needed at all. Just try it out and start building your website today. Then if you decide to purchase it, use the offer code CANDIDFRAME5 and get 10% off your first purchase on new accounts, including monthly and annual plans. That's squarespace.com forward slash CANDIDFRAME and use the offer code CANDIDFRAME5. Everything you need to create an exceptional website. What what insights did you get into race and class as a result of being immersed in this community for as long as you have?
1: Um, well, the biggest thing out there is that that seems, it seems to disappear. It's very comfortable for me when I go out there and it seems to be for lots of other white people from this area. But I don't know that that's entirely true because I do see Mr. Seabury treat people a little bit differently. He does treat the white people a little bit differently, Um, almost better sometimes. But you wouldn't know that if you don't go out there all the time. There's still a level of cautiousness that I think he has that was born out of, you know, really coming up in some rough times. He's about the same age as Emmett Till. He was familiar with Emmett and Emmett's family when he was growing up. And you know Emmett was murdered for whistling or speaking inappropriately to a white lady. Awful, awful thing. And then you go out to Pull Monkey's on a Thursday night and you see white women hugging all over Mr. Seabury. And you see him laughing and sometimes telling uh, inappropriate jokes. Mr. Seabury is very much a man's man. And there's still a lot of teenage boy in him with his humor. You know, you think back to how, how different that would have been when he was a teenager and what he can do now. But there's still a little bit of that, you know, that life experience of what happened in the 40s and 50s and 60s, especially, that, you know, still lingers with him. But somehow he's he overcomes it. And that's amazing to me. I would like to think that had I been through similar hardships in my life, I would show the strength and courage and graciousness that he has. But uh, I don't know that I would. I would think, you know, a lot of anger would seep in as it has for a lot of people.
0: Have you ever talked to him about that that period of his life? A little bit,
1: a little bit. But he is what's challenging with Mr. Seabury and even for me, and I've, probably done as many interviews with him as anybody ever has. And when we sit down to do an interview, I get Mr. Seabury, the, interv- the interviewee. I get the same answers that everybody else will. And I know that they're canned. And I know that uh, you know, he's been asked so many similar questions over and over. He's just not very candid in a formal environment. Mm-hmm. He w- he'll tell you what you want to hear or what he thinks you want to hear. But where I get the, the most compelling stories from him is when we're not in a formal setting, when he just grabs me and says, hey, come on outside, I want to show you something or I want to tell you something. Or he'll sit down next to me, you know, at the end of a night out there and kind of unload for two or three minutes about something that's irritated him. And so it's hard for me to ask a specific question and get a really deep, answer. I kind of have to put together the pieces based on those moments when he approaches me and his guard is down and you know we're just we're not speaking as interviewer and interviewee we're just speaking as two people that see each other a lot. Yeah
0: I want to talk to you about sort of the technical challenges of shooting it because these places are not built uh, lighting wise for for a photographer. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've I've been to like uh, little clubs like in the Dominican Republic in my dad's hometown. And, man, talk about a lighting challenge in terms of shooting. Yeah. So how do you sort of contend with that? I mean, you talked earlier about, you know, when you do the portraits outside, you're you're using lights. But indoors, what are you having to contend with?
1: Well, uh, fortunately, the cameras that are available to us now, I I shoot almost everything digitally. I've shot a little bit of film out there, um, but not much. Um, because of the lighting conditions and because of the low-light capabilities of cameras like the Nikon D3S, which is what I've used a lot lately. Uh, prior to that, I was using a D700, shooting almost exclusively with a 35mm 2.0 lens. And, you know, the the technology is really amazing at what we can shoot in now. And there are pockets of areas in pullmonkeys Monkeys that have that are brightly lit. Like there's a pool table that has a light over it that is pretty bright back there. And so if I had the opportunity to move someone, and early on I didn't. Early on I was just observing and I was nervous about talking to people. But now that so many people know me, I'm much more comfortable with saying, hey, you know what, let's go over here. Or asking somebody, hey, can you tilt that light so I can get a little bit of light on their face for me? And... You know, or carrying a, a flashlight in my pocket and using that. I'm much more comfortable with doing that now. So there are areas where I, that have enough light that I can move. There are bright like beer signs over the doors that give enough light that I can use. If not, a lot of times I'll, use, I'll shoot at a tenth of a second or an eighth of a second, but I'll shoot at nine frames per second. As long as my, And then instruct the subject, you know, just don't move. And as long as they don't move, then that high frame per second will usually give me, you know, at some point I'll catch it to where I'm not moving either. And so we get an image that's in focus uh, or in focus enough to use. Sometimes I don't care and I just want to get the blur. But it's really rare that I'll use flash. I've done some stuff outside, especially some of the images with the white backdrawn, kind of Abaddon-esque where I brought in a single strobe and used that. Car lights, you know, there's always light. There's always light. You just have to look for it. Um, and the beauty of shooting in black and white is that I don't have to worry about color temperature. I just worry about uh, color and in, uh, light intensity.
0: So is that what primarily determined the aesthetic choice of going black and white?
1: That was one of one of the things. And then... A big factor, yes, but also was uh, Bernie's book was all in color, and so I didn't want to repeat what he had done. I wanted to add to it somehow, so I went black and white for that reason, and then the third, and probably the most important, is I didn't want it to be about the space, and when you walk into that space, it is very colorfully lit. There are Christmas lights everywhere. There's a disco ball. There's you know, red and green, uh, beer, fluorescent signs all over. And so I didn't want you to be overwhelmed with the space. I wanted you to pay attention to the people. So I decided that one way that I could do that is to take the color out of it because the color comes from the space. So take all that out and hopefully that forces your attention more on the people that are in the photos. Yeah.
0: I love those portraits that you did uh, outside where you used the the white backdrop um what what spurred that because a lot of your images are indoors, but you mentioned mm-hmm. you started you, you know that that one image that you took of that woman in front of the the place yeah. did that how did that uh, come about and and why the choice to include the white backdrop as well as the the, the juke joint
1: um the that came about like everything else because of st- several factors that kind of all came to play at one. The first was that I was feeling stuck. I was getting bored. I I felt repetitive. So, uh, I was trying to think of ways that I could get out of photographing these same images. And I think any good project, at some point you hit this brick wall. And if you haven't hit that brick wall yet, then you're, you're not done with your project because the really good stuff lies on the other side of that brick wall. Once you reach a point to where you've gotten all the stuff that you expect to get and you're frustrated, you push past that. And then the really rich stuff starts to come in. And so I'd reached that wall and I was like, what, what can I do that's different? And about that same time, I had a friend in town that grew up in the same town. He lives in Austin, Texas now and is a filmmaker. And he and I had been talking about, you know, how can we collaborate on something and, uh, work on some documentary projects together. And we decided one way was just to start and to do something. And so since I'd already invested so much time in full monkeys, we thought that we'd do a little bit of stuff out there. So we wanted to do some interviews with people and we knew that we wouldn't be able to do that inside. And so, um, a week before he came, I decided I would, you know, I said, "Well, we need to set up outside somehow. Let's take this white backdrop. Let's, you know, Borrow from from some of Avedon's work and and see if that will lead to anything. But I wanted to test it visually first because if it didn't work, then we could we had a week to come up with a new plan. And so I took the white backdrop out there and um, knew that I didn't want to just fill the frame with that. So I purposefully kind of backed off so you could see everything going on. But I liked what I didn't anticipate, but within probably the first two or three portraits, what I realized really quickly, I liked the way that the person in front of the backdrop kind of created this formality of, oh, I'm having my portrait made now. And then everything else just went on like regular beside them, outside the frame. And so I wanted to hopefully create some type of tension between that. And so that's why I chose to pull back and and widen everything out.
0: Have you seen any uh, black photographers come through there to document the the place there? Because uh, it's always something you're sort of curious about. Because you know, there's there's always the issue of a, of a white photographer coming mm-hmm. into a a community of, of color to document that. But since you've been there so long, have you seen other photographers of, of color there come to to document there? And have you had any conversations with them about it?
1: I haven't, and that's disappointing. And I, I think you're right, and it's something that I. I certainly struggle with myself, even though I was raised in this community I went to school with a lot of the people that I see out there and, um, and and have some really wonderful relationships, you know, in, in my opinion. But one of the things that I'm really kind of moving towards in my own career is I think we need more of that. Uh, I'm, I'm really intrigued with the idea of citizen journalism right now and that there's no way that we'll possibly be able to tell our story in the Delta until we have, uh, people of color that are documenting their own lives. You know, I I can only tell one portion of it and mine is that of, uh, a white man who grew up here, um, went to public high school, uh, but still lived very much a a life of privilege, certainly compared to many other people here. Um, And I can't run from that. You know, it is what it is, but it's still not the same. And um, what I hope to do actually starting this summer is to start working with some kids here and teach them Uh, or help, you know, help to teach them how to tell a story visually, how to um, use the tools to record interviews, uh, how to create a podcast, things that really aren't that difficult or don't seem that difficult, but in a world where you don't get a whole lot of exposure to that, you know, it might as well be going to the moon. And... I love the idea of what might potentially happen when the people that actually live here start telling their stories, because everything that's been told about the Delta, a great majority of it, has been told by people that don't live here. And what has been told by people that live here is told from the white perspective, Um, even if it tries to be compassionate. And I certainly hope that my work is compassionate, but it's still from a white perspective. Mm -hmm you know, and, and there's no way around that.
0: Well, my, my last question that I ask each guest is that I ask them to recommend or suggest another photographer for our listeners to discover and explore. And it can be anyone, someone you've long admired or someone you've recently discovered. So who would that one photographer be and why?
1: Uh, I've been worrying about this question since you asked me for this interview. Um, Because I have so many people that I could suggest. Bernie Iams certainly has been a huge influence on me. Uh, I mentioned him earlier. Debbie Fleming Caffery is another uh, South Louisiana photographer that uh, I've long admired. Jack Spencer. Um, I've got a buddy in Chicago. I know I'm going over my one limit. A guy named Dave Wittig that's just really starting to find his voice and emerge um, that I think is a really thoughtful and intelligent person that's doing some interesting stuff as well. So, where
0: can people find uh, more about all the work that you've been doing, particularly uh, this this project? Uh,
1: this particular project, I've got a, a little tumble-like blog that I've created. It's uh, portraitofajutejoint dot com. You can find access to kind of all of my endeavors through willjax dot com as well.
0: Great. Well, well, thanks for reaching out. I really enjoyed having a. Uh, a greater appreciation of the wonderful work that you're doing out down there and and greater and great success with, with with the book
1: well thank you very much i appreciate you taking the time to visit with me and i certainly appreciate all the that you do for the photographic community as well so thank you
0: the candid frame is supported by donations from people just like you You can help support the work we do here by visiting the website at thecandidframe.com and contributing using PayPal. You can also support the show by writing a review in the iTunes Music Store or by adding a link to the podcast on your website or blog. The editor for this show is Martin Taylor, who you can find at theothermartintaylor.com. Music is by Kevin MacLeod. And this is Ibodynx, X. And this is The Candid Frame.